What's the risk of mental health problems following COVID infection? Is ivermectin effective in people with mild to moderate COVID? What about raw and cooked vegetable consumption at risk of cardiovascular disease? And does COVID vaccination in kids cause multi-system inflammatory syndrome? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, how about if we start first with the Lancet? This is this issue of, gosh, are we causing problems in kids when we give them a COVID vaccine? And Elizabeth, this is a major concern because when kids contract COVID, they rarely develop severe complications from it, although it can happen. And in fact, there have been many thousands of cases now, what's called a multi-inflammatory syndrome in children that have contracted COVID. It's manifested by fever, inflammation, a systemic inflammation, and involvement of multiple organs, gastrointestinal tract, could be respiratory tract, or could be the heart. And so there was some initial concern that, gosh, maybe if we vaccinated kids, it would actually induce or cause this multi-inflammatory syndrome to occur. So this is an active surveillance study looking at potential cases of multi-inflammatory syndrome in children called MISC. It's using both CDC and FDA reporting mechanisms for kids that have received a vaccination and had any complications. It's mandatory that providers provide this information about any complications. From December 2020 to August 2021, there were 21 million kids aged 12 to 20 who received vaccination. They reported only 21 cases of multi-inflammatory syndrome. We have to compare it to what the risk is in kids that get infected that aren't vaccinated. And that risk is about 220 cases per million. So these numbers are admittedly extremely small. Is there any notion on what it is about the immune response in these kids who develop this syndrome that precipitates it? No, you know, fortunately, it's so rare. There are only 21 kids reported. Interestingly enough, three-fourths of these kids had had previous COVID infection. It's probably more likely related to the previous infection. Okay. Let's turn to the BMJ. And now let's look at sequela of COVID-19 infection, that is mental health outcomes. This is a ginormous study. It has over 153,000 people who survived the first 30 days of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And two control groups, one of them a contemporary group of almost 6 million people with no evidence of COVID and a historical control group similarly of almost 6 million people that predated the COVID-19 pandemic. Basically what they were looking at was a whole lot of different mental health conditions that did they arise after somebody was infected in comparison to these other groups. And the answer in short is yes, they did. And what they saw was increased risks of anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, stress and adjustment disorders, increased use of antidepressants and benzodiazepines and opioid prescriptions, increased risk of incident neurocognitive decline, sleep disorders. And these varied, they're about a third or so of the folks were at increased risk for these things. They also compared this, those big gigantic historical controls that predated the pandemic 
And they compared them to, gosh, if you've got pneumonia, if you got the flu, if you were hospitalized in those conditions, it seems to point to COVID as a specific risk factor for this increased development. Clearly, what the authors are concluding is we need to be scrutinizing this really carefully for this particular range of sequelae that may come after COVID infection. This is a large study. They also compared people that got COVID versus another viral infection, influenza. They looked at people in hospital versus out hospital. And you're right, there's a host of mental conditions and COVID seemed to increase the risk of developing that between 35 and 80%, depending upon which one. So the results seem fairly consistent. Unfortunately, the study doesn't give us insight into why this occurs, but this certainly confirms. And by the way, one of the other virtues of the study is it looked at people over a one-year process. These things persisted for a year. I'm going to point to another study that we're not talking about this week, but that looked at the incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder among the loved ones of people who were hospitalized with COVID, people who were in the ICU. And sure enough, found that it was unique to COVID when you had a loved one who was hospitalized in the ICU, that you did have an increased risk of PTSD. And so I'm going to ask you to speculate on what you think is the genesis of these mental health conditions subsequent to exposure to COVID patient or not. A couple of things. One is there does seem to be a clear relationship with COVID. It appears to be more severe in hospitalized and non-hospitalized patients. So it's almost like there's a dose response curve. It lasts for a long period of time, and it's a number of different disorders. It leads me to believe that the neural system is directly affected by COVID infection. Now, whether it's a direct result of the infection by the virus or whether it's a part of the inflammatory system, that we don't know. I would note, of course, in this study that it was conducted in a veterans and a VA population. And so it's got a very limited kind of capture as far as slice of the population goes. You're right. It does. Is it applicable to the rest of the population? Well, this is one of a multitude of studies that have documented mental health outcomes in people with COVID infection. So I think there's a remarkable consistency even across different populations. Again, the value of this study is the large number of individuals, the long time period they've been evaluated and the great control groups they used. So speaking of COVID, how about we move to the JAMA internal medicine, Elizabeth? Okay, and let's lay to rest this persistent myth about the utility of ivermectin. Well, so it's kind of interesting how this has a life of its own. In 2021, there were two randomized trials from Colombia and Argentina that found no significant effect of ivermectin on symptom resolution or hospitalization rates for COVID-19. That's 2021. Fast forward to 2022, and unfortunately, it's still being used. It's inexpensive. It's readily available. For those people that don't know, it's a widely available anti-parasitic drug used by veterinarians. Nevertheless, this study looked at its use in people with mild to moderate COVID-19 and comorbidities. So and most people with mild to moderate COVID-19 don't have any complications. So it'd be hard to assess whether treatment's effective. They took individuals over the age of 50 and had multiple comorbidities. These are the ones more likely to progress to severe symptoms. And they had about 500 of these. They were in the hospital and you gave half of them ivermectin and the other half placebo. Would the ivermectin individuals be less likely to progress to severe disease? And what they found is that the use of ivermectin did not improve any of those outcomes at all. And in fact, it wasn't statistically significant, but the people on ivermectin actually did a little bit worse. For all of our listeners who who wonder, gosh, there must be a group of individuals in whom ivermectin can be used and can be beneficial. Even in the subgroup analysis, there wasn't a single subgroup that ivermectin was useful in people with mild to moderate COVID symptoms. 
I just have to share with you anecdotally that we had a patient who was in the ICU who actually demanded ivermectin for treatment of his disease. Yeah, ivermectin doesn't help COVID and it doesn't make you smarter either. That's the unfortunate thing. On that note, let us totally change gears to a journal that we have never talked about before. I think it might even, do you think this is a new journal, Frontiers in Nutrition? And the reason that I picked this story, this is examining raw and cooked vegetable consumption and risk of cardiovascular disease, is because it's an analysis of those folks who are enrolled in the UK Biobank study. And I'm very, very intrigued by this study. I believe many people already know about this. This is the study that enrolled a bunch of people in the UK, let's see, between 2006 and 2010, half a million participants between the ages of 40 and 69 years were recruited from England, Wales, and Scotland, who agreed to be little guinea pigs. And so in this particular study, what they looked at was higher levels of vegetable consumption among just shy of 400,000 of those participants who did not have previous cardiovascular disease. They take a look at their validated dietary questionnaires and said, all right, how many veggies are you eating? Are they raw or cooked? And have you had any cardiovascular disease events or incidents during this time period that we follow up? In this group, their mean age was 56 years and 55% of them were women. Their mean intakes, I thought these were incredibly small from my perspective of raw and cooked vegetables were 2.3 and 2.8 tablespoons per day, respectively. So just not very much vegetable per day. What they saw was that raw vegetable intake was inversely associated with cardiovascular disease incidents. Cooked vegetable intake was not. And so if you ate more raw vegetables, then you got lower cardiovascular disease. Then they looked at residual confounders. And so those would be things like your socioeconomic status, how often you exercise, did you smoke, how educated you were. And they were able to say, oops, those vegetables are utterly unassociated. So Elizabeth, as you said, this is looking at vegetables and cardiovascular disease risk reduction. First of all, as you highlighted, it's a large population, about a half a million individuals. It's interesting how they do this study and many dietary studies are done. They give you a survey at the beginning of it, and then they follow you for a long period of time. Surveys aren't the most reliable way. You like to actually document what people do. Number two is it doesn't tell you what happens over that period, that 10 or 20 year period. I mean, do dietary habits stay the same or not? As you mentioned, the amount of vegetables they consume, I spill that much on the floor. That's not what I eat two to three tablespoons. In the US, we're talking about having four to five servings per day and, and servings in the US are not a tablespoon or two. And then the last thing is these populations are always a bit different. So for example, in this particular study, the individuals who had the higher levels of total vegetable intake, they're more likely to be women, better educated, live in an affluent area, have a lower BMI, a higher level of physical activity, and less likely to be smokers. And so those are all things that affect cardiovascular health as well. So the message that I think our listeners should hear is not that vegetables aren't useful or that if you cook them, they're not good. It's just that there are a lot of things that contribute to a healthy lifestyle. And doing these kinds of studies can be very difficult. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. And I think we're going to see a lot out of this study. And it's similar to, of course, the health professional study and the nurses health study, these giganto longitudinal studies that are attempting to discern what are some of these factors and what is their impact. 
And I agree with you. The only way to really figure that out is to say, okay, I'm going to follow you from birth to death, chronicle every single thing you eat, every exposure you have, how much you exercise, and then see what happens. And I just don't think we're going to be doing those studies. Yeah. So I guess if you're going to be serious about your vegetable intake, because you're not going to do it in Scotland, England, or Wales, they just don't have that many vegetables for you to eat. You got to do somewhere else around the world. On that note, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.